You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Jing Gao, founder and CEO of Flyby Jing, swings by the show to celebrate the launch of their new chili crisp vinaigrette. She shares the story of the search for her culinary roots, the launch of Flyby Jing, and how she keeps pushing and innovating with the company in new delicious directions. Then we dig deep, and I'm talking way deep, 2011 deep, into the archives for a legendary performance from We Are Augustines. They had swung by the studio to celebrate CMJ and laid down one of our earliest performances. It's one for the books. We hope you enjoy it. So please sit back, relax, snacky tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. i 
Jing, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, you know, we've had a lot of conversations and people in the food world and restaurant tours since the pandemic. And a lot of the focus has been on restaurants and how they've been affected. But the other side of the conversation is how much people have been cooking at home and, and recreating restaurant meals at home. You know, I'm sure that you've seen a lot of that with the work that you've done and the products and the business that you that you oversee. What has been your experience? What have you seen on the other side of, of at-home cooking and how you've related to that in the last few years? Um, yeah, so definitely once lockdown happened, uh, a lot of direct-to-consumer food and beverage brands like ourselves have um, – actually you know seen quite a lot of growth in that in that period when people were stuck at home uh and just more open and willing to experiment with new things and so um our product in particular because you know we, we're known for citron chili crisp which adds flavor to um a lot of different things and you know people would write us during covid and tell us how it saved their quarantine cooking and how you know, they were able to easily recreate like restaurant flavors at home, which um, <clears throat> I think, you know, having like, you know, cooking fatigue really set in for a lot of people. And so being able to like switch it up um, was really helpful for them. So yeah, we had a lot of very, um, very happy consumers that we found during that time who have continued to support us. So um, yeah, so I think um, it's been definitely challenging in other ways, though, you know, with supply chain and um, being able to get products to our customers on time. And, you know, I think uh, when the, the height of COVID, when it first started, which also coincided with like the biggest period of growth for us, um, we, you know, it was great that we were growing so much, but it was coupled with all the challenges that came with um with trying to fulfill those orders. And uh, we definitely had a lot of people on wait lists who waited a very long time to get their product. Um, and so we're very lucky that people stuck by us. And I think people were very understanding um, of, of those challenges. And, but, you know, now we're on the other side of it. And so, and what's been great is that we've really focused over the past couple of years on you know, really strengthening our supply chains. So, um, yeah. So, you know, now on the other side of it, we're, we're feeling a lot more confident with our production capacity where, um, you know, we've got backups of, you know, factories that we work with. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, freight and everything has seemed to settle down. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, there's so much that was learned and so many business points that I, I want to get to in a little bit, but I want to go back to sort of the beginning because you grew up in, in quite a legendary food city. Um, where'd you grow up? What was the scene like? How big a part of food was uh, in your childhood? I grew up in Chengdu, which is known as the food capital of China. It's the capital city of Sichuan province. It's actually a UNESCO world uh, city of food, which is it's only one of a, a handful of cities around the world that has that des designation. And, uh, you know, China is um, a place that is just so vast. 
Um, it's more of a continent than a country. And there's just so much diversity in regional cuisines within China. Um, and Sichuan is one of the main ones. And it is, you know, incredible, um, in known for its incredible flavor profiles. Um, chefs are able to take like limited ingredients and combine it in, you know, dozens of different ways, hundreds of different ways. And, um, to just create incredible just uh, diversity of flavor profiles. And so um, in Sichuan, I think everyone is born, like kind of uh, born a food lover. Like that's just a prerequisite to being <laughs> a Sichuanese. Sure. And then, you know, so that's just baseline. And, and you know, everybody has their favorite uh, restaurants, favorite uh, hole-in-the-wall restaurants. And these hole-in-the-walls are known in Sichuan as or in Chengdu as fly restaurants. And they are also the namesake for our brand. Um, but these are really incredible, lively eateries that are um, usually hidden and, you know, hard to find. There's no uh, marketing. It's down alleys. and um, But it's so delicious that, you know, it's said to draw people like flies. And so that's the... Um, that's like kind of a hallmark, uh, you know, feature of Chandu's food scene and what I really wanted to bring to life and kind of, um, evoke the energy of when I started Fly by Jing. Did you know how much you're into food or did you just think of it as something that everyone was into and you didn't realize it until you started seeing more of the world and living in other places that not everyone has the same culinary relationship with where they grew up um so i was born there but i grew up moving around quite a lot outside of china so i was kind of i grew up like kind of removed from that culture and we would you know visit every few years to visit family and i remember eating delicious you know food but um, and then, you know, going back to where we were living at the time, which was like across Europe, sometimes in Germany, England, Austria, France, Italy, and then eventually Canada. Um, so I, I think because I was removed from that, I didn't really identify with that food. I, I just, you know, on the rare visits home, I would enjoy it. And it was part of my memories. But um, I, yeah, it wasn't until much later when I was in my 20s and moved to China for work, that I started to really kind of reconnect with um, those flavors and with myself as a result. What drew you to that reconnection? Because if you travel a lot all over the world, then you're in this more, you know, you're in Europe, and there's obviously an emphasis on sort of that type of cuisine. What was that spark when you came back home? that made you realize that this was more than just eating, that this was something that was going to draw you into a new chapter in your life? I think that was a gradual process. It was definitely not like an instant realization. When I first went to China in uh, as an adult, uh, it was through an exchange semester with my university. And so I uh, studied in Beijing. And I, was, I remember being very just... Um, enamored and astounded by how incredibly uh, dynamic the city was. Um, this was in 2008, 2009. And I just 
you know, fell in love with the energy. It was such a fast paced, like city things were so modern, so growing so quickly you had the modernity and then you also had the tradition and the history of this like thousands of years of, of history in, in the city and so that contrast was really um interesting to me and and also like what was possible within that contrast and so i felt like anything was possible anything goes and so i started actually um getting involved with a company that did food tours in the city and I was really fascinated by what I was tasting, what I was learning, because, you know, there was so much depth to all the different regional cuisines and each of the provinces would have like a representative government office in, in Beijing. And that's where you would often find the most authentic versions of the cuisine from the regions, because the local government, the, the government officials would want you know would miss flavors of back home so they they would bring out their their chefs and so <clears throat> so through that process i just learned so much about all these different cuisines and um my palate was really expanded um by tasting all these flavors i'd never had before and these ingredients i'd never had before and so it started off as just like something that was just like piqued my curiosity and the more i looked into it the more I realized how um, much of myself I was kind of uncovering and, you know, I was really seeking identity. I think um, after having grown up the way I did um, all over the world, it was, um, you know, it, it felt like peeling back layers um, of, to myself. Uh, and, and so then the more I did that, the more I realized just how, you know, fascinating all of this was. I started sharing it on a food blog and, and I realized just how little, you know, people outside of China really understood or appreciated um, the complexity of Chinese food. And I um, felt like others would want to know. And so it became a mission about like shining light on the culture and, you know, kind of giving it a pedestal and, and um, the respect that I felt like it deserved. For those who are not, as familiar with Chinese culture and Chinese culinary culture, what do people fail to grasp? How integrated is food into Chinese personality and, and culture as a whole? Yeah. So um, I think what most people don't realize is just how, um, how deep the culture goes. You know, it's a 5,000 year culinary heritage um, it's evolved tremendously in that 5,000 years and it continues to evolve. So no one can really say they have a full handle or grasp on Chinese food or even know what Chinese food is because it's not knowable. It is literally so vast. Um, you know, someone who studies Sichuan cuisine all their lives could never even grasp the, uh, you know, the full of Sichuan cuisine, uh, let alone all of China. And on top of that, it keeps changing still. And just constantly, there's the evolution, which makes sense, because, you know, living, breathing cultures, they change and they evolve. And, you know, otherwise, it's, you know, it, it ceases to exist. So um, I think that was just, just like, instilling that humility in in you in in that like there's no no way that you'll ever understand 
this or can claim to be an expert, you know? Um, and I think that's kind of the, the key to approaching not just Chinese food, any, any culture's cuisine. Mm, yes. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick musical break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the start of Fly by Jing and how you built the business from the ground up. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. And welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with Jing Gao of Fly by Jing. And before the break, we're talking about the evolution and the constant evolution of Chinese cuisine. And I think it's one thing to love something from your childhood, love a specific flavor from where you grew up or where you feel that you have culinary ties to. It's quite another thing to turn that into a product or something that you sell to people. Um, how did you start thinking about 
bottling or putting together the essence of this flavor as a business? Yeah, so I um, so I originally uh, moved to China with a tech job, and I was there doing you know my work during the day and kind of like in my spare time working on my food blogging and food media projects, and um, then eventually I decided I wanted to do something in food full time, and ended up quitting my job and starting a restaurant in Shanghai. Um, and that was kind of my first endeavor, like fully into the food world. And, um, I realized through that process, like learned a ton and I realized I actually didn't want to operate restaurants. I think, you know, that's like a extremely, um, difficult business, just like all businesses, but, you know, restaurants are, have, are quite specific and it's, um, tedious and, you know, all the things and, for me, what I loved about the process, and we we had a very successful restaurant, um, but what I wanted to, what I loved about it was the storytelling, the brand creation, the kind of reaching people with these flavors that I was developing, and I wanted to figure out how can I do some, do that um, even even make it more accessible, but also do something that felt more personal to me. And I was trying to figure out what that was because, you know, we were, our restaurant was a modern Chinese fast casual and it was, you know, kind of recreating a lot of um, flavors from across regional flavors from across China. But um, I wanted to figure out like, what is my, you know, unique contribution to Chinese food. And so I ended up moving to my hometown for a summer and going back to Chengdu and just studying with uh, chefs and going into the countryside and on sourcing trips and just really digging into Sichuan food in particular because that's, you know, what kind of went back to where it started for me. And uh, to, again, it was kind of like a journey in identity and um, finding what resonated with me as somebody who you know, was born there, but also has lived all over the world and wanted to create something that was, you know, unique to who I was. And so um, that led me to Fly by Jing. And that started out as an underground supper club. <clears throat> and so that um, was kind of a pop-up dining concept that I was just, you know, taking the techniques I learned, the really incredible ingredients that I was able to find from across Sichuan and figure out like what, um, you know, how do I put my own spin on it? And so started just cooking and doing pop-ups with other chefs and collaborating and doing pop-ups all, all over the world. And in that process really just saw how, um, much of a gap there was, you know, outside of China for high quality Chinese flavors. I realized that all of the ingredients that I was cooking with, which were so integral to the flavors, they were not available outside of China. And that was for many reasons. There was like no awareness of these ingredients. There was no, so of course there was like no appreciation. And, um, but on top of that, there was also added prejudice against you know, Chinese ingredients and people thought that it was all low quality, that it's not worth paying for. So of course it's like a chicken and egg thing, then then no one's gonna, 
ever export anything of quality if they're told that people are not willing to pay for it, right? So all of those things kind of made me realize that there was um, a, a big gap that, you know, I think there's an opportunity to fill. So I um, knew that these flavors were universal because I was cooking for people all over the world and everyone, you know, you could just see their eyes light up when they, when their palates were, you know, awakened by these new flavors. And um, so there's a lot of love for these flavors. They just had no, they'd never heard of them. They'd never um, heard of Sichuan cuisine, you know, had no idea how to access it. So um, that was when, you know, I started thinking about how Sichuan food, because it is driven by these flavor profiles, which often take the form of sauces. And I was making these sauces already for my dinners, like as components of my dinners. And I was like, okay, I could just bottle this and, you know, and that's kind of how um, we, I started selling chili crisp in Shanghai to like local, you know, stores and to friends and family. You know, you've seen it in America, especially in the last few years with um, first or second generation uh, children of immigrants who've come in and they've looked back into their own heritage and opened restaurants and, and put their own either modern twist on it or just, you know, given an evolution to the cuisine. When you were doing that um, in China, one, is that same trend happening over there? And two, were people open to a new interpretation of a classic condiment? Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was definitely um, a curiosity, right? And that was because, like I mentioned, you know, on the ground in China, there is so much of of that going on. Like there's constant evolution, young chefs were, you know, there was like a new generation of fly restaurant that was, you know, cropping up where instead of like old school mom and pop run restaurant, it was run by, you know, a new generation of, of, <clears throat> of like young people who um, had a love for self-expression through cooking. Um, I think China, you know, it, it's similarly to, here like i think you know as china's like middle class really grew and just as people were living a bit more comfortably like i think my generation of of people um were finding themselves as the first generation in <clears throat> in their uh families who have like the choice to do whatever they wanted right and it wasn't so much like like my parents' generation, they were still like very much, you know, expected to go into specific government government issued jobs and, and things like that. And then this is the first generation where there is so much more. Um, well, they, they have a baseline of comfort and, and stability. And so there's a there's a, an appetite for more risk taking and creative pursuits. And so I saw that within the food world as well. Like they were just like really interesting you know, uh, restaurants that were very experimental and just doing cool things. And, um, and yeah, there was like definitely an, a value placed to placed on uh, high quality ingredients, provenance of, you know, ingredients, um, kind of, you know, I think like, oh, the over industrialization of food, has also been something that's happened in China, just just like it has in the West, right? 
And uh, so there was like this trend of kind of going back to the roots um, as well, but like making it modern. And um, so kind of a high quality chili sauce that, you know, costs five times as much as like, you know, what you're used to. Um, it, it was something that definitely had a huge market in China. I was selling a lot of chili sauce in Shanghai. I mean, that's pretty amazing to see that opportunity and to run with it. How did you sort of gear up for that? I think it's one thing to make and bottle and sell to local stores. It's quite another thing to go to a full CPG brand, possible co-packers, distribution, things like that. Can you take us through a little bit of that process and how much did you know and how much did you have to figure out? So I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, I was, yeah, I was making it all in my kitchen in Shanghai and just hand bottling. Um, and I would get, you know, my, um, just like, you know, my helpers to kind of help me just bottle and stuff. And, and that was, um, that was the extent of it. But when I thought about, uh, expanding to the u.s and that was in 2018 when i went to expo west and saw like just how uh few you know pretty much how there's nothing on the market that represented high quality chinese flavors i was that's when i started to seriously look into scaling production because i knew obviously there's like um you know there's there's rules around like you have to uh, work with certain manufacturers that are like um, FDA certified and, and all this stuff. So I, I knew that was as much as I knew. And so I just started looking into factories and had no idea, had no idea where to begin. So I went to grocery stores and just picked up bottles of sauce that I saw and looked up the factories that were kind of listed on the labels and just called one by one and just got, you know, got people recommending others and just eventually found my way to, you know, the, the co-packers that we're working with now. Um, and there was a lot of rejection, a lot of like no's people had no, um, interest in working with a nobody, you know, that, you know, they, they were pretty content with, their business that they got from, you know, just the domestic Chinese market. There's no interest in um, expanding internationally, especially when they knew that, you know, uh, Westerners, you know, didn't really want to pay for Chinese food. So like, there's just no incentive for them. Right. <clears throat> so um, it took a lot of time and convincing and, you know, um, until I found, you know, a co-packer that was even willing to work with us. And then from there, it was more challenges of just trying to get them to do things my way, you know, like using, you know, my kind of more complicated techniques and my specific sourcing. And just, none of them wanted to, to do that because they didn't have to. Um, they were very content with where they were. Because they knew that at some level, the consumer wouldn't know how good it could be if they cut corners. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think, you know, in that process, uh, it was very clear why things were 
pretty watered down that were mass, you know, available. But um, I think, you know, it was more just like they, they, they had a way of doing things and it's like, they just don't want to deviate from that. Just um, it, it's not, yeah. I mean, if, the, if it's working for them, why change it kind of thing? Um, especially because they didn't know what my quantities were going to be. And it's not, it's not like I was a known company. Um, so yeah, so it was like, definitely took a lot of convincing to get someone to take a chance. So, you know, it's easy to be distorted about these types of condiments, especially this one. If you live in, let's say Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco, some places that have a pretty big, tied to Chinese population or Chinese food in general, when did you start to notice a national tipping point in America when people recognized, you know, what this product was and that people were interested in it and that people were willing to pay for it? Yeah. So um, I think, you know, our initially I launched a Kickstarter and just to kind of see the appetite and people really were ready for something like this, you know? And I think, um, I, that was what I suspected, but the Kickstarter really, um, verified that for me. So it was enough for me to like move to LA, like basically, you know, stop doing the supper club, move to LA and like set up the brand as a consumer packaged good company, like, and, and just start working on that. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, we had that initial base of a few thousand, um, backers, which, uh, we're very lucky to have had like just people who, you know, really, um, you know, foodies that wanted to, and who, who were quite well-versed in Chinese cuisine and, you know, um, liked the that type of like umami and flavor profile so we started with that base the customer base and it kind of steadily grew from there because those people tend to be the trendsetters in their communities and they you know spread the word about us um we we were lucky to have gotten a lot of great press coverage very early on and um you know i think uh quite quickly we you know became um the kind of product that a lot of food people were talking about. And I think after COVID um, in 2020 was when we actually really grew into like the mainstream consciousness for the first time. So um, people started, you know, cooking more at home, like we talked about um, earlier. And we also had um, a pretty major press coverage during COVID, including one New York Times article that um, really, I think, just I blew us it. up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Sam Sifton was it? Yeah. Shout out! Shout exactly. out the great lady! Shout out Sam. <laughs> um, yeah. So Sam Sifton was so uh, incredible to us, and you know he um, was curious about how a Chinese food brand was doing during the height of COVID with you know everything that was going on not just in terms of supply chain and stuff but also you know anti-chinese sentiment and like it's a food product from china so he was curious and just you know interviewed me and i had no idea what it was going to be for but it ended up being an article um in the sunday times that 
set that that uh, was titled "Your Quarantine Cooking Needs Chili Coast," and it was an article just about flat edging. So it was really incredible. Um, and you know, overnight we sold out of six months of inventory. We uh, ended up that year um, 10xing the business, and you know, I was able to hire my first employees. And, and yeah, and so kind of set us up on, on a different trajectory. You know, it'd be so easy just to focus on the chili crisp and do one product and just say, this is what we're about, but you've expanded to so many products and special collabs, even merch feels like, you know, streetwear drops, things like that. And building out content on your Instagram page. Why was that a, important part of the business and not just this one product yeah so i think you know i think from the beginning it was never about the product i think it was always about what we what the kind of change that i wanted to see in the food world you know i didn't see any representation of um real you know Asian voices and and cultures in the food world, and so wanted to change that. And we were really like one of the earliest Asian food brands, and that's all. That's only four years ago, you know. And now um, we see this proliferation. I mean, it's still like uh, the very kind of beginning stages, but we're starting to see so many exciting, you know, businesses run by founders who you know who are you know identity driven and, and mission driven and we're we're very um, proud to to be a big driving force in creating more space for those diverse voices. Um, so I think like from the beginning, it's been a very personal, um, you know, quest of mine to be a you know culturally relevant like driving force, and so that's kind of how we approach the brand and. <clears throat> the brand is also really just about like inviting people into the fold. Um, we're not a brand that's just like we sell Sichuan food and you you must cook Sichuan food if you eat this food. It is you know there's a, a one way to be. There's and no and so since the very beginning we've talked about our products you know being you know good on everything. Like try it on ice cream. Try it on. You know, your eggs in the morning, your sweet green salad, you don't even need mm. to know how to cook. And so with <laughs> that just have it in the those, just have it in the backpack. Put it on everything. Yeah, exactly. Put it on anything. Like, you know, and with those prompts, I think like we've given permission to our customers to really experiment and make it their own. And so it's really, you know, people tell us they put it into their baked goods. People, you know, eat their fruit with it. And they you know, um, it, it's like really incredible to see people just like take it and make it their own. And, and that's, you know, that's what we're all about. Um, I love yeah. that permission to say, this is just another condiment in some ways, not saying it doesn't have a story and has mm -hmm. its place and culture, but it's, you know, you see ketchup and mayonnaise and mustard. Yeah. No, there are no rules where people use it. Sometimes I look at that and I go, not where I would put it. But this idea yeah. that you can take this, you know, maybe you never heard about this condiment or this type of cuisine from years ago. And now you're like, oh, it's just a staple. It's a pantry staple in the best way possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and just to get back to your original question about like, you know, it's a single product business versus all the other things that we do. I think it's really just like we do what like I think the brand is a reflection of of me and certainly in a, in a lot of ways. But I think there's a philosophy and it's like a, there's a point of view that we represent. And we, we believe that that can show up in so many different ways, whether it's, you know, a piece of merch, whether it's like a collaboration with another like-minded brand, um, whether it's, you know, uh, yeah, just, just a product that's like <clears throat> not even food or, or just anything. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, like earlier this year, we had a partnership with Disney for, you know, and Pixar for their film Turning Red. Um, and so and that was like a story that uh, we're really excited to be aligned with because it's literally I, when I first heard about the storyline, I felt like it was a story of my life. You know, it was like this Toronto Chinese girl that turned into a giant red panda and pandas are from Sichuan. And um and it's just like, you know, store, more stories like that that um, hadn't existed before that, um, you know, really aligns with what we're about. So we partnered with them on that. And, you know, we're, we're partnering with Shake Shack as well. Um, you know, we just did a big uh, launch with them in the UK, which is hopefully uh, or it is soon coming to the, the US as well. And, um, yeah, so it's really like there's no there's no rules. I think definitely Chili Crisp is our, is our hero product is our bestseller. But, um, you know, what excites us is to be able to do like kind of genre bending, you know, uh, projects. So. I love that. Well, Jing, I can't thank you enough for making the time and for making a great condiment and product. If people, want to see what you're up to hear about the new products you're working on or just get involved with the larger community where can they go um so people can go to flybyjing.com um and follow us on all the platforms at flybyjing my personal is at jing theory and um yeah we're always you know coming up with new products we actually just launched a new product today um, which is like a chili crisp vinaigrette. Um, I saw that, it for salads. Yes, yeah, please. Yes, yeah, please. It's for all kinds of things, you know, salads, noodles, dip, dip your dumplings in it. It's just this really incredible mixture of our chili crisp, soy sauce, a 10 year aged black vinegar and some sweetness as well. So, um, yeah, just, uh, coming to a a tuesday lunch near me very soon exactly (laughs) thank you so much we have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on snacky tunes on heritage radio network
This week on Meet and 3 from HRN, we're dissecting the mojito, one ingredient at a time. Because it's fizzy water and it's different to other waters we've seen, it must cure something. I actually hadn't heard that Sir Francis Drake story before, but it was so typical it had me rolling my eyes over here. There was no other substance around where you could get so much booze per bucket. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. So... Most bands, you know, get one shot and get to some, you know, fame and then kind of just go away. You guys are kind of on, you're on your second leg, in my opinion, as like yeah. another band or anything. So how are you approaching it differently this time? If it, it has to be important to us for our time these days. Well, so if it's, as opposed to before where? We're just getting dragged along behind of the, the uh, indie school bus there, dragging us through hell and high water, breaking our bank accounts and for pretty much free beer so that those bullshit days are over and we're, we want to live our life with <clears throat> intention and purpose and feel good about what we're doing I mean people love you guys I, and I know that other people like bands but I know that you have a very very loyal group of fans and supporters in the you know indie school bus world even though things go specifically KXP who's been Huge champions of, of you guys, and many others, and many and many others. Many other, so they've helped so many people. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just amazing, you know. Like, you know, do you approach the shows differently, tours differently, or is that kind of? Yeah, we're doing everything's like we, we decided to do three people instead of five, so that makes like <laughs> being able to get to things like this in a car like so much faster. Um, we kind of like got to sit. We just got to chill out for a year and look at it completely different. And, um, I think that sometimes when bands get rolling, <clears throat> there's no time to stop, right? Like mm-hmm. you're either trying to hold down a job or you're touring, and there's no there's no time to stop and reassess stuff. You're just going. So Eric and I quit drinking for like six months, uh, <laughs> stopped hanging out. Like our phone call, our phone certainly didn't like ring off the hook when Payla ended. You think you? I thought people would ask if like we'd be trying to get like see if we could play with them or guest on their records or nothing. Thanks, New York. Thanks, New York. I mean, that's kind of like, I mean, I feel like that's anything in like the creative world. Like, if you're in it, you're in it. But once you're out, people yeah. are just kind of like, like just keep blinders on. on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just, I, I don't know what to say. Like, Well, also it changes. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's like those people are like early 20s who are your champions and they move on and the next yeah. thing. And then it's like these new round of people. Yeah. Like, uh, I was at Treasure Island this weekend mm-hmm. and DFA 79 was on the, uh, the headliners on the side stage. And... You know, there was nobody there no under their late twenties. Uh, I mean, because they just—I mean, they just stopped, and then like—I mean, they didn't put out anything new. They didn't put out a new thing when they got back together. Yeah, and it was just like I was like I was like, and even the person I was with, who was two or three years younger than me, was like, yeah. I mean, I, I heard of them, but I wasn't in it, and so it's sort of like, yeah. if you're not in it, which you know, I mean, I think yeah. you guys and we were talking about before we went on like it was a very specific time in our lives. Yeah, well, like if you weren't in that time or that scene, it was just like, yeah. Well, it, well, I think that that's what well goes back to like when we started. The difference between then and now is uh, n- knowing all of that, knowing that everyone disappears when you when you're not the the name on the right. blog anymore or whatever, and knowing that your your entire existence in many ways is purely digital and it will just be wiped out the minute you're done. Um, why on earth would you want to participate in that kind of world? Because it's such a trite, superficial world. So we had to ask ourselves why we would want to do that, and getting to that core place where you realize that. Be even you know we, when you started when we most people when they play music is because they love it 
right. and when they're kids they they get they connect to it on some well some level and it can and it makes them like kind of feel life a little differently and then the industry kind of has this this game with you and it makes you hate it and a lot of people become bitter become uh, self-absorbed or whatever or just get totally lost and you know why on earth would you want to go back into that and reconnecting with why we play music and why why we're here was the foundation of what we're doing right now so, so what, that's 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 really the see, biggest difference it, it, the sad part about it is that it has not it's not the music's fault the music's like the pure thing and everything right. else is kind of silly so mm-hmm. what type of like opportunities and like shows are you pursuing now that you might have like just been like nah we're not interested in that i don't just there's there were there's been offers to play ever since the band started and we've just just not really feeling like going over the that going over that patch of land we've already done that and so right. we, we started touring in the uk and kind of worked our way back from the uk to here so it's worked out really nicely okay so can we hear another song sure hey old man turn and scratch his chin said son i wouldn't know where to begin but your daddy's gone is gone down south all he would talk about We never blamed it on the soil The sun burned earth Or the prices of the oil This border town is my home I got rattlesnake guts In a desert full of bones Now my sister I'm going to find someone So I won't come back no more Shining on my hood The statue on the dashboard Of Maria looks beautiful And I'm heading down south Got tequila in my veins And the devil in my mouth Tell my sister I'm going to find someone So I won't come back no more No more Lord, I see red Jukebox tears and stones for us. Hey, it's alright. I got jukebox tears under turquoise skies. Hey! Some demons took it even Now my demons count rosaries We never blamed it on the soil The sun scorched earth Where the desert meets the sky Tell my sister I'm going to find someone So I won't come back no more No more 
All right. That's sounded great. Thank you. Uh, uh, as you enter back into the studio. Well, I, you know, we have... I, Damn dog showed up, and I wanted to get them some pizza. And you got a, a cookbook. So, CMJ is upon us, yes, as sir. it happens every year. Uh, you're not saying it right. It's CMJ. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, I've never heard that before. <laughs> and uh, you've been listening to Snacky Tunes. I am out. I no, that's... Between you and Billy, I can't win today. <laughs> that, I mean, but that's really... I mean, let's be honest. Like... Shows are sort of secondary at CMJ. It's not really What's uh, primary. Getting your name on a flyer, which is, it, it, much, honestly, which, is, which is pretty much everything that we are Augustines just said that they are not pursuing. I know, but I'm I'm just saying that like you guys are doing it right because you guys have selected like, but like so many of the shows are just like it's a pain in the ass to load in. The majority of New York doesn't care. It's not like Austin when like the entire city is like ready for South by, mm-hmm. or it's like a festival when it's just like you're in a, in a location like that's CMJ is like a very tough thing to play. I think we realize that we are background music. After all these years, we kind of finally realized that no one really cares. I don't know. I mean, I might, I might be biased, but I think, full disclosure, because I work for the Ace Hotel, we're partnering with KXP. You guys are playing there on Wednesday. Yep. I think those opportunities awesome. were, are awesome. But then again, it's because, you know... 50, 100 people might show up because of you know, limited space or because you guys are playing at 11 in the morning. Sure. But then it lives on in the ether and is recorded and things sure. like that. But playing the 8 p.m. slot on Thursday at pianos, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe not but, as... The, to, not to come full circle, like this is, the, this is the topic, right? Like It's really nice kind of having done it and looking at things going, you know, I want things to have meaning. Like I right. want them to mean something. But I mean, th- I, I would say this... Um, we had uh, J.D. Sampson, who used to be in La Tigre, or still is in La Tigre, and was in Men, and talking about second second comings or things like that. It's like, you're starting over in the sense that like people might not know the name, but you already have the relationships, mm-hmm. which actually, and you know the ones that are good. Yes, sir. And as opposed to the ones that are bad, which we talked about before. Yes, we did. Uh, and that is well ahead of the curve. Then like a starting point being like, hi, yeah. please try and listen to us. Which yeah. is like great, because you guys get the opportunity to play... KXP without having to put the five years of just having them to like hear your songs first. No, no, but you put in the five years. I mean, it's all about moving forward, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we started with... When, when Paler broke up, we realized we were surrounded by vultures. And, and it was up to just, us. Just to, put it, just to, to put it loosely. <laughs> just yeah. to, in the nicest terms possible. But it was up to mm-hmm. us to, to change that perspective. And then at the same time that we were surrounded by vultures, the minute we changed our perspective, we realized we were surrounded by people who supported us and loved us and would do anything they could to, to help us. And They're we just there. simply went towards them. I mean, you know? Billy, and, and all of a sudden we have yeah, I mean, like a you whole got different in, perspective on music. Exactly. And you got in two serious accidents. And there's yeah. still... What I thought was great about that is like you got in an accident you guys had to pause. Mm-hmm. Uh, you came back and there were people there. And you got into another accident mm-hmm. and there were people there. And that, to me, was like one of the most heartwarming things. Yeah. That people were just like, yeah, we'll just wait. I know. I thought it was really. I thought it was really uh, noteworthy that I, <clears throat> living in a city this big, it's really. I try to explain it to people when we're not here, like actually what it's like to actually live in New York. And there's like basically like, you know, areas that have their own scene, their own their own tempo, their own vibe. Um, but the fact that like a, a music community at large actually helped me. I mean, that wasn't. I think that that, that surgery was like fifteen grand. 
Which which one of the two surgeries? The hand surgery? The hand one, yeah. Yeah. So, like, that was actually, I felt like a very, it would have been a really awesome write-up, but, like, no one really gave a shit. I thought it was fantastic that the, there is a music community, even though it doesn't always feel like one. Right. Um, and they actually really stepped up, so it's actually really something to be proud of. And you know how it is with, the, you know, it's so much about the bad story, not the good story. Yeah. yeah. The accident was important, not the aftermath. Yeah. Yeah, I think exactly. I, I mean, wasn't that the case though? Yeah, well that I mean it, it also to, to go back to Augustine's for a second like it really took a village to raise the band in a way because we um we started a listener supported model to get our band off the ground. We didn't do band camp. We totally did our own thing and reached out and we designed our own website. We, Which is an awesome website by the way. Thank you. Yeah, it's thank really you. it's thank really you. good. But we just had to basically I don't know if anyone's even listening but um in the music world or for the food food folks are listening but i guess what i would say to people who are <clears throat> doing it or starting it just don't don't underestimate the power of like your friends and i know you've been hearing that for years but like even people that headline the bowery or or do radio or whatever like even those guys like need to ask for help from their friends and give back also if you get, get a chance to like help other bands out do it and I don't know if what you got in mind that like New York's going to be some like kind of fancy cakewalk where everyone gets to hoe down and get drinks and chase girls and stuff like get rid of that model it's lame like, it doesn't work it's lame I think that's a, a good note to uh, to take us out before hold on a second before we play a song because yeah. I know they ever say that let's give people the uh, you know where's what's the website how to follow how to get in contact how to book you for gigs well there's, there's where to buy the record keep, which has been out since this summer I keep oh. hearing <laughs> I keep hearing about this um there's like this this website something called about face some face the Facebook the oh book? that one yeah wait what book uh the people book it's really it's supposedly it's really popular hey I, I heard uh keep an eye on it and if you got money just wait there might be something in there might be something yeah I hear they're making a movie about it too yeah documentary <laughs> no, there we go the high five <laughs> I'll try this hold on hold on hold on website we we are augustines.com it, like it's like it's spelled can't miss it. awesome and uh we got we're gonna do we're gonna have you play a song they're gonna play a song for damn dogs and they're gonna be in here 10 minutes 15 minutes cool okay. great awesome uh, the name of the song before you guys Uh-oh. and uh, thank you to sean fletcher who oh, can, thank you sean thank you sean yeah. nice who's got literally like the best shirt on it, of it, all it's time it's plaid yeah. pearl buttons with bees is there something else we could play um this is a new song This is about it. 
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org/slash subscribe.